United Church of Christ presents Belonging to One Another. The reflection by the Reverend Jean Randall Bobbin presented on Sunday, September 10th, 2023. Please pray with me. Holy One of old, ancient of days, and guardian of the future, be with us in preaching, in hearing, and in praying. Make the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts a doorway to you, for surely you are the source and ground of all our living. Amen. The news is full of images that could move a person to tears of sorrow and empathetic grief. Earthquake, fire, and storm. Famine in Sudan and war in Ukraine. There is so much suffering. There is so much that sometimes the tears don't come because the scale is too big for our human hearts to take in. Until, until you notice the helpers, the people who race toward the trouble to rescue and lift up. The ones who turn aside from their own trouble to make sure that their neighbor has the help that they need. If you watch carefully on the news, you will see people of every race and religion and political commitment reaching out to help neighbors and strangers of every race and religion and political commitment. When the fire is approaching and the wind is rising, it suddenly becomes obvious that what matters about our neighbor is not the color of their skin or how they pray or who they vote for but simply that they are a human in need of rescue. We are at our best when things are at their worst, when there is no time to stop and judge if the one in need is the right kind of person, when everyone is reduced to simply being human together, when the truth that we belong to one another in the one family of humanity is obvious and elemental. It is this that moves me to tears and gives me some small glimpse of hope in the cavalcade of bad news. Because remembering that we belong to one another is so easy to say and so difficult to put into practice. Today's gospel reading has some practical advice on how we can live together in community and work on the actual day-to-day -day practice of belonging to one another. Not just in theory, but in our lives together. It contains words of such comfort, words that we often take out of context and repeat to ourselves, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among you. I am with you. But that promise of accompaniment is part of a process of reconciliation. So it makes sense to hold those words always, but also to hold those words in their context. As someone who has spent her whole life as part of church congregations, I can say with all honesty that I have seen the best 
the most beautiful and the most noble of human behavior in church, among church people. I have seen acts of overwhelming generosity, of self-giving love, of tender, steadfast friendship, and accompaniment through every kind of hardship, and rejoicing together in every kind of joy. Church has been a constant and almost unalloyed joy in my life. But also, some real talk. Churches are made up of just us, just humans with all of the foibles and weaknesses, all of the neuroses and fears and misplaced aggressions of every other place where humans gather. Also, sometimes we're just tired or forgetful. It is true that even here in a place of love and safety, people hurt and get hurt by each other, even in the most kindest and most loving of communities. And when that happens, especially when it happens in a place that is usually so safe, our culture encourages us to act in several different ways, all of them unhelpful. The first way we are encouraged to deal with hurt or harm that we have received is to go and tell everyone else except the person who's done the harm. I have a vivid recollection, which caused me to burst out laughing. David wondered what the heck I was doing on Friday afternoon. I have a vivid recollection of a woman in the church that I grew up in who would buttonhole my mother in the parking lot every single Sunday to tell her how angry she was, not at anything we had done, but at what the choir director had done this week. We always assumed she was telling the choir director what we had done to make her so mad and hurt her feelings. It is a time-honored tradition to vent our anger and spread the news that so-and-so is not to be trusted. This impulse is fed by our cultural moment in which harms and offenses are often shared on social media, where sides are immediately drawn up, nuance is lost, and opportunities for restoration are trampled over. Now, I am not suggesting that we should hold in or swallow harm that is done to us. Sometimes we do need to start by seeking solace and telling a trusted person, hey, this thing has happened and I am hurt and I need help. Sometimes, especially if we know ourselves to be in a vulnerable state of mind, it makes sense to go and check in with someone that we trust and say, this thing has happened and it is not sitting right with me. Do you think I'm reading the situation wrong? Jesus did not say, when you get hurt by your sister or your brother, when a sibling harms you, just suck it up. He did teach his disciples to pray for forgiveness and to offer forgiveness. And in the sentence that follows today's reading, the very next sentence, Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if my brother or sister sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. Some manuscripts even read 70 times seven times. So, you know, a lot. In her commentary on today's text, Reverend Debbie Thomas 
points out Jesus's utter realism. Unlike us, who sometimes assume that if we are living in a lovely, warm, sweet Christian community, we should either not ever experience conflict or cover it all over with a nice, bland, sweet niceness. Jesus took it for granted that we will disagree and hurt each other. He starts with the baseline assumption that conflict within the beloved community is normal and natural because we are human. The question is not whether we will hurt each other with our words and with our actions, but how to proceed when we do. In a sense, what Jesus lays out in this text are rules of engagement and the principles of love and respect that should undergird them. The first principle is very obvious, be direct. You will be able to go deep, and if you begin with the assumption of the other person's good intent, you will be able to preserve the dignity of the other person who may have harmed you, after all, unintentionally. Reverend Steve Garnos Holmes wrote a beautiful poem about this, this passage. It goes like this. If one sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. Talk with people, not about them. Don't underestimate the power of this challenge. To do this, you stand on your own legs. You renounce having others speak for you. You take responsibility for your feelings. You don't sublet them for another to control. You honor your heart, your experience, and its integrity. You rely on God's grace rather than your own comfort. You trust your worth regardless of another's reaction. Your belovedness regardless of another's discomfort. You free yourself from imagining that you can manage another person's discomfort. Knowing your dignity is untouched, you subject it to your love. You express your love for them by not shielding them from the truth. You respect them by not speaking ill of them to others. You go to where you know you may have to forgive. You open yourself to hearing how you also have sinned. You open the door to reconciliation, which opens no other way. To be so honest, so forthright, gently but clearly, you are transparent to the gospel. You are free and not afraid. You are light and not shadow. I love this poem so much because it is true. It is both brave and self-loving to go directly to someone and say to them, what you have done, what you have said, hurt me. It is also respectful and loving of the other person to go to them directly and honestly and open to reconciliation. It requires you to stop imagining that you already know what the other person intended. Once upon a time, and I wish I could say it was longer ago than it was, I found myself becoming habitually annoyed with my husband. His crime? Leaving the folded laundry. 
Laundry he had sorted, he had popped into the washing machine, he had moved to the dryer, and he had folded the moment it was dry, that same laundry. He then left in piles all over the family room, lots of little piles festooning every piece of furniture. <laughs> I found this not just deeply annoying, but actually insulting, because I leapt to the conclusion. I was certain that he did this because he was thinking to himself, I've done enough. It's up to the rest of them to put their own laundry away. I'm finished. And I thought to myself, I had long internal conversations with myself, wondering how would he like it if I came home and did the same with the groceries and just left them in little piles all over the kitchen and the dining room. Now I mentioned this to my best friend, who managed to keep a straight face and a gentle tone in her voice as she said, I guess you'll have to mention it to him. <laughs> it turned out that David could not find the laundry basket. Of course he couldn't, because it was in the back of my car. It was in the back of my car, filled with paper and paint and a globe and a frisbee, all the things I needed for youth group while the youth room at my former church was being painted. I thought I knew what he meant by what he was doing, and I had no idea. Not every story, obviously, has such an easy resolution because not every story is based on such a silly example. And I imagine that most of you are much more mature than I was at that moment. And you don't go around filling in the blanks to explain other people's behavior. Creating entire narratives that put the other person's behavior in the worst possible light. As Reverend Thomas puts it, go directly to the person, choose depth. It feels so obvious, it feels silly to say out loud, but it needs to be named because we humans and we spiritual people are often so appallingly bad at doing it. Jesus begins by teaching us that when we experience conflict, when we feel hurt, we should go deep and name it right out loud. We should not allow a broken relationship to wither in the shallows with no more chance for authenticity and transparency. We should engage one another. I imagine myself, my little thundercloud over here, and David going blithely on his way, and a wall growing up between us because I had so much trouble coming clean and saying, this bugs me, I don't like it when you do it, and then allowing him to answer. We also need to be willing to be on both sides of this equation, to imagine ourselves not just the one who has received harm and bravely goes to the other and says, this is bothering me, it's hurting me, help. But also, we have to be able to imagine ourselves as the one who has done the harm and is willing to hear about it. As Reverend Thomas asks, am I willing to hear hard truths from the people I offend? Do I value honesty and authenticity enough to surrender my privilege and my power and to listen without defensiveness when someone confronts me, when my behavior has been unskilled or unkind or just thoughtless?
Can I stop shielding myself behind my good intentions and sit and listen to the actual impact my behavior has had on another? Do I care about reconciliation and restoration as much as Jesus does? Or am I willing to settle for a life lived in the shallows? The second principle is that when we speak directly, we preserve the dignity of the person whose behavior has hurt us. Before we know the whole story, Jesus says, protect the privacy and the dignity of that person. There's a lot you don't yet know. We don't have to drag the other person's name through the mud. We don't have to humiliate them. We don't have to start gossip, invite people to take sides with us, as I did with my best friend, asking her to side with me against my husband. What? Anyway. As I mentioned earlier, our social media culture of publicly disgracing other people sets a tone that invites us to do this kind of lifting up other people's harmful behavior to get other people on side with us before we have spoken to the person whose behavior is bothering us. Sometimes we lift this up, this public shaming, as helpful and even healthy but it breaks relationships, and it can break people's spirits. The third principle of Jesus' strategy is to guard the truth. If you're not listened to, if the person that you're speaking to one-on-one will not or cannot hear you, take others along with you so that every word may be heard. Take more listeners to draw out the truth. Sometimes a one-on-one conversation just isn't enough. When that's the case, Jesus tells us to bring in a few more people, not to spread gossip, not to gang up on the wrongdoer, not to escalate the conflict, but to make sure that the truth is articulated and guarded from both people so that we can work together towards reconciliation. When we feel injured, it's easy to resort to exaggeration or to press our own advantage, to try to get one up. When we, when we are the one who is doing the wounding, when we've hurt someone else, it's easy to deflect and minimize and pivot away from what really happened in order to defend ourselves. Having others who are there to listen without judgment can help us stay inside our own skin without deflecting or defending and simply tell the truth together. This is especially needed in our current moment, when the very concept of truth is being attacked and desecrated on every side. I quote Reverend Thomas here, the truth is attacked and desecrated as if it doesn't matter, as if it's up for grabs. But in fact, truth does matter and it is not up for grabs. Jesus, who is himself the truth, insists that we guard against falsehoods in our dealings with each other. The fourth principle of, this strat- of Jesus' strategy is to lean into the body, by which, she mean, by which I mean the body of Christ. If the person who has done the harm still won't hear you if you've gone with some others, discern among the whole congregation. This might be the hardest thing of all for us because it's easy when you bring in a lot of people to break into factions, 
And that's not the goal. Also, we like to think of ourselves as a voluntary association of individuals, not one integrated body. We love our individualism and our independence and autonomy. But according to the New Testament writers, Jesus called the church to be a body, each part interdependent with the others. So what's at stake in our little conflicts is not just our personal feelings, but the health and well-being of the whole body. Jesus' promise to be in and with us and between us is for this moment. Jesus promises not to leave us alone in moments of conflict, but to be with us so that we can guard the truth and find reconciliation and a way forward. And sometimes, all our efforts at reconciliation just fail. When that happens, if the offender won't listen, even to the gathered body of the church, Jesus said in the New Revised Standard, let them be to you as a tax collector or a Gentile. Words that the church has used in many times and places to exclude people entirely from the church, to shut them out. But Jesus healed the Gentiles who came to him. And Jesus called Matthew, the tax collector, to be his disciple. I love the way Steve Garnas paraphrases this. If someone who causes harm won't listen even to the whole church, treat them as one who is just beginning, one who is just beginning to follow Jesus. Jesus offers the outsider and the beginner love, care, compassion, and hope. He doesn't cancel or get rid of people. He doesn't, the, the people he doesn't like or whose values or beliefs don't match his own. He continues to love them as creatively and authentically as he can. This is not an ancient instruction on how to cancel someone. We are called to behave like Jesus, even when the most painful of harms happen. I remember in a situation in a church I served when I was a seminarian, I had to fire a Sunday school teacher. And I had to fire her because she was scaring the children and making them cry. Her words were mean and cruel. We had to set boundaries for her. She was never allowed, again, to be alone one-on-one -on -one with children. She had to have another adult there with her. We found lots of other ways for her to serve in the church, and she even created all of the costumes for the Christmas pageant because she actually loved children. She just didn't know how to interact with them. We created boundaries, and we invited her to stay in communion, and she did. We held open the possibility of reconciliation and restoration and renewal because we are church and we believe in resurrection. We don't believe that people who are causing harm should be allowed to continue causing harm, but they should be held as they are able. The teachings of this text seem to me perfectly timed for the historical moment we occupy, when we are so divided and partisan, when we are entrenched in our own perspectives and our own subcultures. We can barely hear each other anymore, and we do not know how to listen. What would it be like if the world looked at the church and saw us as a school for learning how to belong to each other well? 
This is our high calling, to be known not by our rightness, but by our love, by our attentiveness to one another and one another's needs, by the way we show what it means for human beings to belong to one another in honesty and kindness and humility, to belong to one another in love and hope. This is the calling of the church and the gift that the church has to offer to the world. Amen. Listen, listen, God is speaking to you.